fun to see the youth excel in uh, music. And what a blessing. Thank you, Lincoln, Darla on the accompaniment. Uh, blessing to everyone. What a, what a way to minister to God's people through holy music and, and singing. The blessing that that is to all of us. We're going to turn now to our scripture, Luke chapter 8. We are three quarters of the way through the parable of the soils. If you're joining us, uh, having been absent last week or maybe for the first time last week, we observed three categories of unproductive soil. And when the seed of God's word was sown in them, they produced no no mature fruit at all. Now, as we learned, that doesn't suggest that they couldn't have done a good deed now and then, or they might not have been for a season uh, uh, given an appearance of a Christian. The absence of fruit indicates there's been no spiritual harvest, no mature fruit. So the three types of soil so far do not represent Christians. These soils are representative, all four of them, conditions of the human heart. It's only the fourth type of soil, the good soil we're going to look at today, that indicates a heart prepared by God to receive His Word. And it not only bears fruit, it does so, folks, with perseverance. Good soil is very different from the soils we studied last week in two primary ways. Good soil bears mature fruit, and it does so with with ongoing perseverance. I'd like to begin by rereading verse 15 from last week, and then follow that up by reading the parable of the lamp. But the seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now, no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So take care how you listen, for whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. In just one verse, in verse 15, Jesus directly contrasts this good soil with the other three. Directly contrasts them. First, the honest and good heart is compared to the hard and penetrable heart. That was the one line beside the road. Uh, verse 12, Matthew revealed that that was the hard beaten path where people walked. It was trampled underfoot. Uh, this was likened to the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. When we read about the heart, folks, try not to equate the understanding of our heart to the emotional feeling. Don't automatically default to that. In biblical writing, the heart doesn't as much signify the emotional part of our being as it does the intellectual state of our being. The heart is the cerebral center of the intelligent thoughts of your mind. It's what you think. It's what you understand. That's why Romans 12 verse 2 warns us to be transformed by the renewing of your minds, right? So that you may prove or so that you may know and understand what the will of God is. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. The concept of well, asking Jesus into your heart 
at least as a purely emotional response, exclusively as an emotional response, that's not evident in Scripture. We don't find that in Scripture. Though emotions surely do intersect the mind. There's no denying that. The idea of trusting Christ as Savior would be better conveyed by receiving the truth of Christ in your mind. Understanding what the truth of God is rather than an emotional response. And once the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and prepares the good soil for the seed of regeneration, the gospel appears foremost to our center of reason. It makes good sense. The person realizes, I am a condemned sinner. Things aren't looking well. I need a Savior. It is is cognitive. It is emotional, but it is also intellectual. Um, While the recalcitrant heart, the hard heart, rejects all claims made by Christ. Also intellectual. They reject the claims of Christ, denying Him. It's a hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. The second contrast verse 15 gives between the good soil and the bad is good soil receives the word and it holds it fast. It holds it tightly. It suggests the act of taking a possession of the seed or God's word. It means you own it. You own it. That's contrasted to the superficial heart in verse 13. The rocky soil that had no firm root. Right? It quickly withered away. Over a short period of time. Finally, verse 15 tells us that the honest and good heart, or the honest and understanding heart, it bears fruit with perseverance. Oh, how is this different from one of the soils last week? What's Jesus contrasting that to? That's the opposite of the person with the thorny life. The thorny uh, life that endures with the word for some period of time, it goes along with it, but eventually gets choked out by the thorns of their life. The fruit of the word never develops into maturity in the thorny soil, uh, but in the mature soil it does. Thorny soil does not endure with perseverance or endurance. If your translation says patience, we'll cover that in a few moments. The points to consider here in this parable, there's so many of them. They're so numerous, I just want to glean the obvious right here and now. Folks, a sudden and emotional confession of Christ, it's not a reliable indication of salvation. It's not a reliable indicator. Two types of soil gave a response to the word, but were never saved. It's one of the reasons we're so concerned when When many youth today will make a profession of Christ quite quickly in an emotional sense, and then we wonder what's going on when they fall away in college. They don't return. They don't go back to church. We we ask ourselves, well, what happened? They were baptized while they were in our church. Something we always have to be careful about. The numbers are just staggering of how many who have professed Christ and then over a period of time uh, fallen away. The Scripture would suggest it would be wise to make our appeal with our youth. And we do this. Gerald does a great job with this. Make our appeal to their intellectual being. Knowledge of Christ. Understanding the truths and the facts about sin and about Jesus. Don't don't appeal merely to, to fleeting emotions. Not merely to that. I've heard Alistair Begg say on occasion... Don't ask me what I feel. 
ask me what I know. Because some days I just feel really rotten. You ever felt that way? Really rotten on a day? But the truths about Christ don't change. We know we have a Savior who died for our sins and reconciled us to Him. And in three days He rose again. It's possible that you you haven't heard this, but the idea of getting people emotionally stirred, to get get them stirred up and trying to extract a rather quick and, and spontaneous or superficial commitment, that was not characteristic of, of Christianity until the early 1800s. Charles Finney was the father of that. He was part of the Second Great Awakening. Um, he is the grandfather of massaging emotions, to put it that way, to try to get people to give uh, a quick response. And from that time until our modern day, extracting an emotional response to Jesus has crowded out the, the intellectual reason, the intellectual response, so that rather than the teaching and the reading of God's holy word, churches now prefer to extract an emotional response. You'll go to churches today and very, very more, uh, much more often you'll find an appeal to the emotion. An appeal to the emotion. But accepting Christ remains an intelligent decision and an intellectual response based on facts. Let me read this to you from Luke chapter 14. You don't have to turn there. Think about this, whether it is a purely emotional response or primarily a reasonable response that Christ is calling for. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, Jesus asks, when he set out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else... While the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. See the reason involved? Jesus says, so then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. A lot of thinking involved there. A lot of rational thought. Jesus is calling for us to think. Is Is there a role for emotion? Sure there is. Sure there is. Is there a time to call for a decision? Absolutely. Peter called Jerusalem when they're pierced to the heart. He says, repent and be baptized. And in Acts 2 verse 40 he says, with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, be saved from this perverse generation. But Peter's message was based on sound understanding of who Christ was being crucified. And, and that plea yielded 3,000 souls in just one day. But it's based on intelligent information. What I want to 
surmise to you is that the bearing of fruit with perseverance, bearing fruit in, with endurance, it's characteristic of those who receive the word with an honest and an understanding heart, a good heart. So genuinely trusting Christ is a rational decision based on facts. You've weighed the cost of following Christ. You've calculated the value attained by becoming His disciple. You've discovered a pearl of great price. For that reason, the seed of God's Word in your life, it doesn't get choked out by the thorns. You've already assessed the thorns. You've already assessed Christ. And those thorns of your past aren't going to choke you out like it did in the thorny soil. And the Word of God perseveres. It bears fruit unto maturity. If your translation says bear fruit with patience, that's good. That's just fine. We only need to realize that the translators use that word uh, patience to describe how fruit matures over a period of time. It's not a quick thing. It's a long period of time. If you prefer, you could use them together. Patient perseverance. The life of the Christian is one of patience and perseverance. Bearing fruit. By comparing this to the rocky soil where the word quickly falls away or the thorny soil where it slowly gets choked out, you'll recognize the good soil prepared by God to receive the word, receive the seed, bears fruit with patience over a long period of time and perseverance all the way to the end. You follow me? So that the sower who is God harvests a bumper crop in your life. Over a long period of time, bearing much fruit, there will be a bumper crop. You are the soil, folks, where the seed of God, the Word of God, has been sown. This is indicative of all genuine Christians. We bear mature fruit. Jesus said in Matthew, some yields 30, some yields 60, other yields 100-fold. Do you remember last week what the typical yield in good soil during Jesus' day was? Fourfold, right? That was the typical yield in good soil from, from typical seed. This, this 30, 60, and 100-fold that Jesus is talking about indicates the bearing of fruit and the harvest that is coming is miraculous. No, no one there would have thought that you could get 30, 60, or 100-fold any of them. Jesus said the Word of God will bear that. The sowing of His Word into you, and James tells us, receive the Word implanted, right? The sowing of the Word into you, if you're the real deal, if you're the good soil, oh, God's going to harvest a bumper crop. It's going to happen over a long period of time. Not all yields are the same, but all are large all are miraculous. Just as we observed those three types of soil that gave no yield, there are comparatively three types of good soil that give a yield. A variety of yields, a variety of returns to the sower. So, every Christian doesn't become equally fruitful. But all true Christians do produce a miraculous return on God's investment. If you heard, I'm going to use her as an illustration because I love her. 
And she's not here today, that's the other reason. If you heard Carolyn Robertson last week, sits right up here along the aisle there on vacation. Late in the sermon, she had an uncontrollable outburst. I I thought she was going to offer come forward and offer some kind of public confession or something. But after the message, she immediately came up to me. She, she was tracking. She was thinking. She came up to me and she asked, do I have any fruit in my life? She goes, I don't think I have any fruit. You know what immediately came to my mind? Our scripture reading earlier from Matthew chapter 25 Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. I've known Carolyn long enough. I've seen lots of fruit in her life. Wonderful fruit. I could reassure her of that. She's just not keeping track. But Jesus is. Jesus is. We don't have to keep track. In fact, it's probably best we don't keep track. But if you belong to Christ, you are patiently bearing fruit, and He promises to reward you in proportion, in proportion to your fruit. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8. So this parable of the soils, it reminds us to persevere in bearing fruit. I doubt anyone here, I haven't, I doubt anyone here has hit the hundredfold mark. Raise your hand if you have. Anybody really feel like they fulfilled God's full uh, capacity in them? So the good soil naturally asks then, well, how do, I, how do I produce this bumper crop? How do I yield the greatest amount of glory to Christ's life through my life? How will I experience that great reception into eternity that says, well done, good and faithful servant? Well, I don't think it's accidental that this challenge to bear fruit comes immediately before the parable of the lamp. Listen close. I'm going to try to go through this quickly. Look with me at verse 16. No one after lighting a lamp covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Especially before LED bulbs, folks. You lit a lamp, you wanted to get it up on a lampstand. So that everyone who enters a room could see. Let your light shine before men, right? Say, this little light of mine. We singing that for closing? No? Sure. So the point is that a person who bears fruit will shine so other people can see it. It'll be evident. Verse 17 likewise assures that evidence of the light, it can't be hidden. It will become known. Nothing remains secretive or private about the Christian faith. You could say, you will know a soil by its fruit. But if you were back with us 
were with us when we were back at study chapter 6, the bad fruit, the bad fruit of the false teachers, if you're with us at that time, that bad fruit that came from the tree, because you would know a tree by its fruit, it said there, their bad fruit was false doctrine that you audibly heard. Remember that? You're listening for correct doctrine. So we were taught at that time to listen for the fruit that falls from their lips. That's identifying false teachers. But I believe you'll notice, or, or you'll see, that the fruit of the soil is significantly different in nature. The lamp seems to suggest the fruit of good, good soil is something you can visibly see, not just hear. In verse 16, your, your fruit will shine so that others can visibly see it. In verse 17, the evidence cannot be hidden. Again, a visible reference. And once again, in verse 17, there's nothing secretive that will not be made known and come to light and may be made visible. So again, we're talking about things that are visible. The, the good soil produces visible fruit. Context is not primarily verbal as it was before. It is visible with the good soil. Let me see if Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 can shed a little light on this. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to our all in the house. Sound familiar? Listen to this. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. You got it. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's visible, folks. The fruit of the good soil can be seen through good works. It's a light setting on a lampstand. Jesus is not talking merely about the fruit of the lips. Fruit of the lips exposes false teacher, but the fruit of the visible good works exposes the soil. False teachers will be revealed by their words. Christians will be revealed by their good works. Boy, I think there's a book written about that, huh? James, faith without works is dead. When it comes to assessing whether soil is good, we're, we're not only talking about orthodoxy or sound doctrine anymore, we're talking about orthopraxy and sound practice, sound behavior. And when good soil produces fruit, everybody will watch it. Everybody will see it mature. You will mature in Christ before our very eyes, and we see it every day. You'll mature through Christian service. In fact, the parable of the soils would suggest that mature fruit is essential. You have to have mature fruit. The other three soils are false converts, or not converts. If you saw our sign pulling in for this ministry month, we quote Jesus as saying, the greatest among you must be a servant. That's something you will see. Works, not merely words, distinguish the real McCoy. The whole book of James would suggest you can't be just all talk. He says, show me. Show me your faith without your works. And he says, I will show you my faith by my works. It will be manifest as visible. And the parable of the lamp in Luke it's a logical extension of this, this parable of the soils. Jesus says, He who has ears, 
Let him hear. In verse 18, So take care how you listen, folks. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. Whoever has, meaning whoever has that honest heart, that understanding heart, by listening to him more will be given. You follow it? He will be given more understanding, more fruitfulness, and more reward. By understanding and receiving this parable, as we study it together, a person who is good soil, you might move from a 30 to a 60, folks. By having ears to understand what the will of God is. He who has ears, let them hear. What's your number? What is your number? He or she who does not have an ear or an understanding heart does not have an understanding heart. Just bad soil. Just bad soil. Even what he or she thinks that they have, it will be taken away. Their fruitfulness that occurs entirely in their mind is not real fruit. What does mature fruit look like? Better, what does maturity in Christ look like? Very easy. Looks like Jesus. Does your life look like Jesus? Christian maturity leads to self-denial as Christ denied Himself. It leads to putting away worries and the riches and the pleasures We talked about last week the thorns, putting away the pleasures of the world. It involves becoming conformed, Romans 8.29, to the image of God's Son. That's maturity. That's what good fruit looks like. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. What does maturity in service primarily Invest itself in? How does Christian servitude look? Let me, let me give a few hints. This will be from our scripture reading earlier in Matthew 25. I love that passage. Let me give you a couple hints. Did Christ just randomly wash anybody's feet? Or did he wash his disciples' feet and did he command them to wash other disciples' feet. Does Christian service primarily now primarily occur to unbelievers and if there's a little bit of time left over or a little bit of resources left over perhaps you'll get around to Christ's body, the church. Or does Christian service begin with the love of the brethren the people of Christ, His holy ones, and from there overflow to unbelievers? The answer comes by way of our scripture reading in Matthew 25 as Christ establishes the basis of our entrance into His kingdom. The king will say to the sheep on his right, Come you who are blessed to my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine. To that extent you did it to me, even to the least of them. Christians serve one another first. Christians serve the body of Christ first. Our inheritance to the kingdom is based on our desire, the Holy Spirit living within us, to minister to Christ's body, to His church, the manifestation of God's body, the living church. That that suggests other Christians that we know. We intimately know them. We know their names. We love them. We engage them. We serve them. We interact with Christ's body, His loved ones, His beloved. For 1 John 4.20 says, The one who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is all concern about Christian brethren, folks. 1 John is about concern for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, 1 John 3.17, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? These are not general references. A lot of people think that. You go to Matthew 25 and they'll look at it and it's like, well, if I just, you know, be generally nice to general people in general, then Christ is going to be so pleased. That's not what Christ is calling for. Christ is calling for sacrifice to His church. I could give you a dozen examples, but let me give you just one more from James chapter 2, verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? But whenever you see brother or sister, the brethren in the New Testament, when you see that, it's almost always indicating the Christian fellowship. Your attitude towards your local church. Almost always. It usually has little to do with blood relatives. That's not what it's talking about. Brothers and sisters. Beyond those brothers and sisters their blood relatives who have also trusted Christ. Then they're included in the brethren. Your entrance to eternity, your, your love for Christ becomes evident in how you love His body, in how you care for one another intimately in your local church. In fact, it's also no coincidence, not accidental, that the next passage we're going to look at next week, in that, Jesus redefines the family of God. 
who is really the family. When his parents, or when his mom and his brothers and sister come looking for him, he redefines who his brothers and sisters are. The brethren, his church, his chosen, his beloved. Comparatively, Denial of entrance into the kingdom is based upon an unwillingness to demonstrate love towards Christ's body. An unwillingness. Matthew 25, verse 45, to the goats. Jesus says, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these. And in context, he's talking again, brothers of mine. When you didn't do it to them, you didn't do it to my brothers. You didn't do it to me either. These will go away, he says, into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Service and generosity, this is just the truth. This is a cold, hard truth, and people don't like it. People just want to kind of flutter around and kind of do good, you know, wherever they feel they're least tethered, least tethered to other people and least accountable to anyone. Scripture suggests service and generosity begin in your local church. In your local church, number one. And then it overflows into the world from your spirit of love for one another and generosity towards one another. We love brethren first because Christ loved them first and he gave his blood, he shed his blood for them. So the fruit of good works are predominantly manifest in visiting sick brothers or sisters. Just as Hazel Orgish Spent the entire night last Monday morning up till 4 a.m. with Faye Ritzy in the emergency room. Hoping to get her the medications that she needs. You have about a 78, 79-year-old woman taking an 86-year-old woman in the middle of the night to the hospital. That is the fruit of righteousness right there. She loves the body of Christ. Hazel would not want me to make mention of that. She's not here today, is she? I hope, hope not. She's not going to lose her reward. She never asked me to mention anything. In fact, a few examples I'm going to use might embarrass a few people because they simply don't want to keep track and they simply don't want recognition. But I'll risk it because Scripture says sheep follow good examples. If you go back, you'll follow a good example. Cheryl Alberino manages our meal train where we provide meals to people who from time to time in our church, they're ill, they're experiencing hardship, and they need someone to be able to cook for them. Uh, Each occasion that that comes up, it's entirely voluntary. For those who sign up, you'll get an email asking if you would like to make a meal for someone who is sick or hospitalized or their family while they're in the hospital. Uh, You'll hear more about how to fill that need in the coming weeks. But today we're talking about building maintenance. And this is my chance. What a great way to bear fruit in ministering to the body. To serve the body of Christ. There's been an unfortunate overreaction, folks. This is just honest. It's a correct reaction because the church is not a building. It's not. There were... Centuries we went through that the church was recognized as a building way back. It's not, but it's been an overreaction to that false understanding. Christ's church is the gathering of His people, but Christ's people certainly reap benefits from ministries carried out in a building. 
been a great way to minister to the body. It is a great way. Most Christians enjoy sitting in chairs. We do enjoy air conditioning in Florida. Brian Tatum, a licensed repairman for air conditioning systems, went through this week and spent an entire day servicing all of our air conditioner systems in the building without being asked. Didn't have to do it. Probably didn't want me to mention that right now. I'll probably get a word after the service. If you enjoy sitting on a toilet, it's probably my wife Rita who cleaned it. Toilets are essential ministry, folks. Essential ministry to the body. She could benefit from one or two others who would either clean with her or willing to alternate every other week. We've got Ruth Buchanan who every week vacuums this entire building. Every week. Um, She too could probably benefit from someone alternating with her or helping. Without fail or complaint, Donna Adamski doesn't miss a beat in vacuuming the other building every week. The outside is maintained by a team. We have stalwarts like Tim Gunter and John Sanford. They're relentless on their service to the church. There are people like Greg Hansen who handles wiring and sound equipment and whatever else that we need, and he just does it, never complains. The 10,000 pounds of railroad ties that used to be in our parking lot here that you're not driving over anymore, those 10,000 pounds of railroad ties that we dug up and hauled away, it would have never happened without Russell Laux. In fact, Russell's been manning a weed eater every week. He would like to restripe the parking lot for us. Ron and Frank Quintana wash windows. Anthony Alberino would like to update the bathrooms. Again, essential ministry there. Having good bathrooms. Jaden and Jerry Beasley maintain the mowers and help cut the grass. Gigi, she chips in uh, even with a bad rotator cuff every other week. I could go on and on. You're getting the picture. And I'm just talking about building maintenance. There's all kinds of other ministries going on, but the opportunities are there. Nathan has that black enclosed trailer. I don't know if you've seen it. It's loaded with mowers and weed eaters and hedgers and probably hoes and a generator. And you'll see that thing whenever he isn't making chicken sandwiches. You'll see that thing parked out here any day of the week, any day of the week, any time of day, serving the body all hours of day and night. The best part, what I really love about building maintenance once you get to know Tim, he knows who you are, knows you aren't going to cut your foot off or burn the building down. It's pretty flexible. Within certain parameters, like we want the mowing done towards the end of the week, within certain parameters, it's flexible. People can serve at, at any given time, whatever's flexible. The best part of all these people, every single one of them that I just mentioned, we never have to call up any of them. Never have to guilt them. That's not fun. We don't want to lean on anyone. We don't. The Holy Spirit of God will motivate people to serve the body of Christ. They're just bearing fruit. They're just bearing fruit to Christian maturity. They are the lights that shine within our church. And I know that their light overflows to their neighborhoods and their family and their neighbors outside of church. So if building and grounds is sounding like you, I'll be up here, Tim, probably Russell and others, Uh, after we finish, we'll answer questions. You're welcome to sign up. Or you don't have to sign up. You can just ask questions. The option is right here for you. That's the ministry for this week, and we won't 
mention it again for the rest of the month, I don't figure. I'm going to ask the men to come forward to serve the Lord's Supper.